0: or prevent any disease. You are listening to Real Men Feel with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel and, and welcome to 2020. And you know, perhaps I shouldn't say that because you could be listening to this in the dawn of the new year as intended or you could be listening July 4th of 2027. You know, I don't know. So maybe I need to say you know, greetings and celebrations for all possible holidays that you might be near as you listen to this. And you know, in, in fact, perhaps I shouldn't even say Real Men Feel um, because all men feel. It's just men feel could be what this program really is called. Some men don't think they're supposed to feel. Some men were taught they aren't meant to feel or were taught to only feel certain things. But certainly men do feel. And many men feel anxious, which brings me to today's episode. It's my honor to welcome counselor, speaker, author, and neurotherapist David Phelan to the show.
1: Hey, Andy, it's great to be here with you.
0: It is, it is. (laughs) <laughs> I, I can say that confidently. <laughs> I have no anxiety about that. Although I certainly did when I showed it the show, but uh, that shows up lots of places. So, you know, ang- anxiety on its own is, is not something that, that we've discussed on the show. Um, you know, and certainly in my personal experience and talking to other people, um, anxiety and depression seem to go together. Like anxiety always seems to be part of something else. But So I'm, I'm glad that we're going to just focus on that. But but my first question, David, is is what is a neurotherapist? I'm not familiar with that term.
1: So I have a master's degree in counseling, and then I did additional uh, training in neurotherapy, uh, which is specifically in my case, brainwave biofeedback. And so we use uh, medical grade uh, equipment to monitor different systems of the body in in and, uh, also the brain. And as we're doing that, what we're looking for is, is the body out of balance? And if it is out of balance, is it out of balance in a manner that is consistent with the symptoms? Um, So in certain cases of anxiety, there might be parts of the brain that are operating too fast. And so through biofeedback, the patient that I'm working with can learn to slow down uh, that particular part of the brain. And uh, when treatment is successful, then that can alleviate anxiety.
0: Oh, Cool. So it's helping people to get conscious control of, of their brain as opposed to just reacting to what their brain does to them, kind of?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and with all biofeedback, that really is what we're trying to do, is to help people have more control over uh, their physiology and more control over their emotional states. Hmm.
0: Interesting. So um, is this line of work something you've always done? Like, what, what prompted you to want to to help people in this way?
1: Well, uh, when I was first exposed to it, I was at a, a training, and actually it was a, a, a training for educators, and um, I was heard about somebody doing this work. And um, I have uh, a son who um, is on the autism spectrum, and they they said that it was one of the trainings that could be helpful for people with autism. And so that's when I began to explore it and and realize that there were many applications for the patients that I work with. And so I started doing that work um, and uh, did that for several years um, and even uh, wrote a book about biofeedback uh, at one point. Right now, that's uh, not as um, prominent as uh, a part of my work because what I'm trying to do right now is really go beyond the work that I can do face to face in my office, uh, which is why I started focusing on, on the RIP anxiety uh, program and making resources available to people on the internet. But it certainly gave me a strong foundation for sort of the, the neuroanatomy of, of anxiety and how to help people. Um, again, beyond just what we're doing in the office.
0: Hmm, cool. And and did you find that it helped with autism as well? Was there success there?
1: You know, um, there are, so when my son was um, receiving neurofeedback, uh, he was also doing, um, working with a, a counselor, uh, receiving services that way. Uh, he was, um, his medica- medications were being managed by a psychiatrist, and he was also doing horse therapy at the same time. So getting a lot of services and he definitely made uh, progress. It's hard to, to pinpoint um, to which one of those uh, we would uh, ascribe the most benefit to, but he definitely did make progress during that time. Mm-hmm.
0: Now is, is anxiety, is that something you've always focused on or is that just, is, is that a particular, uh, you know, series of symptoms that, that you can can do online better than other things?
1: Yeah, it's kind of both. Um, I would say a majority of the patients that I see in my office are dealing with depression and or anxiety. I mean, I treat other mental health uh, concerns, but those are the most prevalent. And and that really mirrors what's happening uh, in the country. Um, And I think around the world as well, that um, depression and anxiety are two of the most prominent mental health concerns out there. And also uh, two that are the most treatable. And so when we started looking at how can we help people online, uh, we decided to start with uh, anxiety um, and have a lot of experience working with anxiety in the office and a, a, a pretty good system uh, for helping people. And that's how I decided to go in that direction.
0: Cool. So you mentioned the RIP anxiety. So is that an, an online only program or is that also can be done face to face? What are the details of that?
1: Yeah, it really is the approach that I take with my clients. And uh, so it, it's a, a model uh, for eliminating anxiety and as well as um, just a, a nice acronym, you know, you'd like your anxiety to rest in peace. And so I use it with my face-to-face clients, but that's also the model that I walk through online um, in my online course.
0: And you specifically you said eliminating anxiety.
1: Right, right.
0: So not treating, not tolerating it, truly eliminating it.
1: Right. And, you know, it's it's interesting. When I um, first started working online and, and got involved in social media, I was kind of surprised at the pushback that I got when I started talking about being able to eliminate anxiety. And uh, what was surprising to me is having had the experience with so many clients that were really able, in my opinion, to eliminate the anxiety, when I went online and, you um, the, the pushback that I got was people saying, well, the best that you can do is, is to learn to, to live with it. And, and that just didn't square with the experience that my clients were having. Um, and you know, when I say eliminate, the, I want people to be clear about what I mean by that. Um, when a patient has um, worked to resolve their, their anxiety, that doesn't mean that they won't ever have an anxious thought. It just means that it's not controlling their life the way that it is or that, that it used to be. Um, and, and I frequently will, will use um, Peter as an example. Uh, he was one of my clients, and, and he gave me permission to, to tell his story because it, it really is a profound story, and uh, he knew that it was something that could help other people. But um, Peter was having panic attacks every single day before he had come to see me, and it was the kind of thing that, that led him to go to the emergency room on multiple occasions. And he was taking um, a a lot of medications to be able to treat his anxiety. And for him, one of the ways that it manifested is that when he got home, he started to feel more anxious around his kids. And so he would have to isolate him. And that was really hard for him because family was a really um, important part of his life. And so not only was he feeling anxious and and was being triggered by being around his kids, but then he felt guilt because he couldn't be around his kids. And so he came in and and we worked together um, for a few months. And one day he came in and said, I had the strangest experience this week. I remembered that I was being treated for anxiety So anxiety was so far gone from his experience that week that it didn't even occur to him that he had anxiety until he saw that he had this appointment to go to. (laughs) And and so that's the kind of thing that I mean. He will have anxious thoughts from time to time, but it's substantially different than it was before. And and that's what I want my clients to to be able to to conceptualize is that it really is possible to, to get to that place. Now, one of the challenges with anxiety is... Uh, anxiety, I, I describe it, I say that anxiety is a liar. it's going to try to tell you things that are not true. So if anxiety can get you to believe that it's not possible to eliminate anxiety, then you're going to be stuck with it. And so that's why I advocate for it is possible to eliminate anxiety. I've sort of defined a path um, for getting there and help people to take steps down that path.
0: So maybe we can work on uh, separating some terms and because it, it seems like anxiety is certainly a, a spectrum of, of, of things that someone might experience. So Absolutely. So how, how would you separate anxious thoughts from full-blown anxiety? What's kind of the difference?
1: Right. Well, I think you're really right on to something when you say it's a spectrum. And I tend to think of all mental health symptoms on a continuum. And so frequently I will say to my clients, on a scale of zero to 10, if zero is completely calm and relaxed and 10 is the most anxious, where are you? And what I try to help them to to recognize is by the time that you get about halfway up that scale, so by about a five or higher, it's going to start to uh, affect your thinking. And so, you know, I have some clients that, experience what I call spikes of anxiety. So their resting state might be like down at a two or three, but then they have these spikes that shoot up to like a nine or 10. And the spikes may not last for very long, but it's really unpleasant while it happens. I've got other clients who have what I call an elevated resting state. So they might be at a seven, eight or nine all the time. Um, And I've got other people who have what I would call a mixed pattern. So that might be above a five and that's the resting state, but then they have these spikes that occur on top of it. And again, the spike itself may not last very long, but when they come down, they never really get lower than a five. And so, you know, we can think of it in terms of, you know, what's diagnosable. Um, but, you know, quite frankly, m- many people who come to my office don't really care what we label it as they just want to know how to deal with it right. you know so there're different anxiety disorders like PTSD is an anxiety disorder or panic disorder is an anxiety disorder you know and and those have different constellation of symptoms that go along with them but again what most people want to know is what do i do about it and so what what i'm advocating for is helping people to learn how to lower that level of anxiety and get to the place where it doesn't often get above a five, and, and so when I say eliminate anxiety, that's really what I'm talking about. Cool, cool. So
0: those eliminating those kind of peaks and extremes, where it's really all you can focus on, is is that that anxiety.
1: Right, and the higher that it gets, you're absolutely right. The more um, the more of your thinking it consumes, um, and but even you know if you sort of have a low grade uh, anxiety, it might be there in the background all the time, and you're, you're not really gonna perform at your best. you know. And so when, when I'm uh, walking through an evaluation with people, oftentimes what I'm asking them is, you know, how much does this bother you, and also how much does it get in the way? So if we can help people to get to the point where they're not bothered uh, because their anxiety is low and it's not interfering with their performance, really that's what's ideal for them.
0: Cool. Yeah, because I, I imagine, if some, if it's kind of like a, a constant background thing,
1: uh-huh.
0: people might just think, oh, this is this is how life is. This is how everybody feels.
1: Yeah. Right. Until
0: they bother to e- examine it and maybe discover that, oh, the, no, there's 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 an agitated state. There's this level of stress or nervousness that's kind of always here that doesn't have to be here.
1: Right. Yeah. It's it's interesting, uh, and this go, kind of ties back to to biofeedback. You know, sometimes I ask people to to rate themselves on that scale, and they say, oh, I'm at a two or three. And then we hook them up to the equipment and we find out they've got twice as much mu- muscle tension as they should. And what that tells me is they don't know what relaxed feels like, mm-hmm. you know, and as you said, they just think it's normal.
0: Yeah. So, hmm, what, what are some signs that, that someone is dealing with anxiety when, when it's not to the level of like, it's really obvious? What, what is, so is it feeling you know, a level of physical tension? Are there, are there other things?
1: Yeah, I mean, there there can be. Um, what I try to help people to, to think about is, uh, to what extent is it interfering with their thinking, and to what extent um, is it showing up in their physiology. So their physiology could be things like um, increased muscle tension. Uh, their heart rate could be faster. They might either hold their breath or uh, breathe faster. Um, it can af- affect blood pressure. Um, they might uh, experience trembling or shaking. They could experience uh, hot flashes or uh, feel uh, chills. Um, so those are all symptoms that uh, can show up in the body with anxiety. And, and, again, sometimes people are experiencing those things and not really even aware that they're experiencing them until somebody points it out to them. Um, I, I had one client that I was re- working with recently recently who kept clenching his jaw and he wasn't even aware that he was doing it until I I pointed it out to him. And so so those are some of the the, uh, things on the physiology side of it. And the thinking side of it is, you know, um, particularly in um, where your anxiety is more severe, your mind can go blank. Um, You can get um, stuck on particular thoughts. Um, There might be confusion. Uh, You might have trouble paying attention, you know, and and as far as the attention goes, you know, some um, people, particularly young uh, people, may be misdiagnosed as being uh, ADD or ADHD when it really is anxiety. And you know, when ha- people are having a hard time trying to figure that out, the the example that I use is, you know, imagine somebody pointing a gun at you, you know, and then asking you to solve a, an algebra problem. <laughs> you might get it wrong, and and it's not because you can't do math or you can't pay attention you are paying attention you're just paying attention to the to the gun so you know whatever your trigger whatever is triggering your anxiety you might be paying more attention to that than the other things that would be helpful for you to be paying attention to hmm. so
0: so then is, is one of the keys kind of realizing you know, that you can take control of what you're focusing on and right kind absolutely of that conscious shift yeah
1: cool yeah so so when i ever i start somebody that i'm working with anxiety i ask them to recognize that anxiety is an emotional state that works the same way as every other emotional state anxiety works the same way as depression or anger or feeling lonely on the unpleasant side on the pleasant side feeling happy motivated confident they're all emotional states And what that means is that what they have in common is that it's always about what's going on with their thinking and what's going on with their physiology. And that's so true that if you make a big enough change in your thinking or physiology or both, you literally can't stay in the same state. And so the example that I'll use for them is I'll say, you know, think about the last time that you were really, really stressed or really, really anxious, you know, and imagine at that moment you fell into an ice cold pool. You know, you can imagine yourself, you know, shivering violently. Well, if that was going on, you literally wouldn't be able to stay anxious. Now, it doesn't mean that that can't come back. The anxiety can't come back. But it's just that while your body is doing that, you can't maintain that that state of anxiety. Or I say, you know, imagine right at that peak of anxiety, a fire were to break out in your house. And you've got to get your loved ones out of the house. Again, whatever it was that you were anxious about would be gone. Again, it could come back, but you can't maintain it while there's that shift in your thinking. So the fire represents a significant change in your thinking, and the uh, pool represents a significant change in your physiology. So what I tell people is that what we're going to work on is helping you to create changes in your thinking and your physiology or both. And the corollary of that also is true. What it tells us is that if we try something and it doesn't work, all that that really means is it didn't create a big enough change in your thinking and or your physiology, at least in that moment. It could be a good exercise or a good strategy. Some of the strategies that you work with just need to be practiced more before uh, it becomes useful for a person. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're talking a lot about different strategies and focus and kind of conscious conscious effort and, and awareness. Uh-huh. So is, is this a program that um, – is kind of intended for people that perhaps tried prescription drugs, they didn't have success or can it be in combination or, or where does it fall along with, with prescriptions?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So what I talk about with medications is that, you know, if you can do for yourself, what the medication would do for you, then do you really need the medication? Right? And I tell people, I always tell people, you know, medication is not my background. I'm not a medical doctor. Right? But I think most people can look at that and say, yeah, if I can do it for myself, then I don't need the medication. And so that's my goal is to help people to do for themselves what the medication is doing for them. And I, if they're on medication, I, I tell them that you know ideally the way this would work is you start using these strategies, you feel an increased sense of control over your experience of anxiety, and then you go and you talk with your provider and talk about backing off the medication. And as you're doing that, then we're working on you being able to maintain the implementation of the strategies to get that same level of um, calm. And if you can do that, then you can keep walking down the medication. And of course, I want them to work closely with their provider as they do that. Um, But but yeah, that is the goal. I mean, if I could have all of my patients not be on medication, that would be great.
0: And is there... Is there a level of anxiety or or anxious thoughts that actually serves people?
1: Well, right. So you're talking, there's a a level of concern, I'll call it, that does help to focus our attention. Um, And so if you don't have sufficient concern, then you may not perform well, Um, But anxiety, you know, I would define those differently. Um, When I think about anxiety, I think about a concern about something that is either not real or not present or both. You know, so, uh, you know, if you see a big dog that's running at you, um, you know, your heart starts pounding. I I would define that as fear, and fear is a, a normal, healthy thing that keeps us alive. But if you see a dog that's just sitting there and you think to yourself, oh, no, that dog could start running at me and your heart starts pounding, then that's what I would call uh, anxiety. And so we want to have an appropriate level of concern um, for anything, particularly in in performance situations. But there's a difference between that in my mind and anxiety.
0: I'm reminded of kind of stories about fight or flight. Right. That you either stand your ground and you're going to go into battle mode or you're going to run run for your life and protect yourself, but that there's also a third choice, which maybe is the example, that choice of almost the, you can't decide, is it fight or flight? I, I'm so anxious, I'm stuck here and I can't, I don't make a decision and I'm right. just kind of stuck.
1: So fight, flight or freeze is what you're describing. Yep, yep. And it, it's interesting and this is part of what I wrote about in, in my book uh, is that you know if you think about our physiology, it really hasn't evolved much from you know, the time we were cave people, you know, and, and the, the threats that we had to deal with at that time were things like, you know, a, a tiger running at us. And so our physiology is designed to deal with that threat, you know, to increase our heart rate and our muscle tension that helps us to, to fight or or run away, and then and then to calm back down. You know, if you're fighting a, a tiger really there's one of three things that happens, right? You either fight the tiger and you win, you run away and you get away, or you get eaten, right? (laughs) And all three of those things are over pretty quickly. But what happens in today's society is that the stressors that we experience aren't over quickly. I mean, if you think about sitting in traffic, you could be sitting in traffic for an hour or more. So your body is amped up because that is a potentially life-threatening situation, but doesn't have time to, to calm back down. Or if, you t- if you're talking about dealing with a difficult boss, you could be on edge all day long. And so what happens is the part of the body that is responsible for uh, activating us, the sympathetic nervous system becomes stronger, and the parasympathetic system, which is supposed to calm us back down, becomes weaker. And so we, we lose that balance. And so people with anxiety often uh, are dealing with con- chronic stressors, and so as we're helping them to manage anxiety, we're helping them to restore balance in the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system. Mm-hmm. So you're right. You can have fight, flight, freeze. Um, and again, if you're in that state for a prolonged period of time, you can um, shift the balance in, in your uh, stress recovery system.
0: And you know, it, in, in today, many people aren't, told, aren't taught that it's appropriate to run away when, when facing a stress. And certainly that's not true for men.
1: Right, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, a, like a, you know, if you hit tough times in a relationship or a challenging situation at work, I, I have never seen a man just say, "All right, I'm out of here and, and <laughs> run away to to you know to protect themselves." Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> I was gonna I was gonna ask is is there a best reaction to have? But I, I mean, it's always dependent on it. Right. Right. So there isn't a single always do this. That just can't be the case.
1: Right. Exactly. And and part of what you're talking about is um, running away um, as an act of uh, self-preservation. You know, the the best uh, strategy in that particular situation. In, and, and that would be in situations where to stay engaged is going to get poor outcomes. You know, if you stay engaged, you're going to make it worse. Now, if your anxiety is high, if you're above a five, you're not going to be thinking rationally. And what's going to come out of your mouth or your behavior is not going to be effective. Mm-hmm. So moving away from that situation to give yourself time to deescalate and then reengage actually is a much better strategy like, like you're talking about. Yeah. And so it's an interesting segue into the RIP model. Um, the, so RIP stands for the three steps or the three phases of dealing with anxiety. So R is for recovery, what happens after an episode that makes it less likely that, that uh, what you experienced in that episode is going to get carried forward into the next situation. I stands for intervention, which is what we do in the middle of the episode to uh, terminate the episode as quickly as possible. And P is for prevention, what we can do beforehand that makes it less likely that the anxiety is going to show up. And so when you're talking about um, you know, moving away from a, a situation where we're not getting good results, in, in um, once an episode is set in and we're above a five, that's a time that we want to use interventions, but the problem is because of the way that anxiety affects the brain, we may not remember to use a strategy. We may not know how to use a strategy, you know, because our, our brain isn't functioning well. So sometimes just getting out of that is the best thing that we can do. And and oftentimes what I help clients to recognize is because you're going to have least access to your higher ordered thinking during an episode, you really want to focus on the recovery and the prevention strategies.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the way I'm kind of phrasing this and thinking about it in my head with the, the fight or flight is is more of a comical version. But yeah, just de-escalating or just, you know, recognizing that, all right, I'm just going to step back from the situation, you know, take three deep breaths or or, yeah. or excuse myself to the bathroom, whatever it is to just be alone and regroup and decide what what strategy to go forward with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting when I do uh, couples therapy, oftentimes we, we talk about that very thing that that if you're in the middle of a conflict, the conflict may not be productive. And so oftentimes the best thing to do is to take a timeout. Now, when um, certain people hear that, they don't want to take a timeout, particularly if they've had the experience of, you know, if we stop talking about this, it's never going to get resolved. So one person wants to take the time out, The other person wants to keep pursuing it. So when they do uh, take a timeout, what I recommend is, set a specific time that you're going to come back to it. Even if it's five minutes later or 10 minutes later, that allows you time to deescalate, but then also gets the situation addressed so that it, it doesn't just get swept under the carpet.
0: And tell me a little bit more about the difference between recovery and intervention. Cause intervention is stopping an episode right? And, and recovery seems to be about that particular episode as, as well.
1: Right. So, so the thing that many people can relate to is uh, anger. And, and particularly if you've ever been in a situation where you know that you overreacted. So let's say that you are having a conflict with somebody and that situation doesn't get resolved. And then you have another conflict with that person and the third conflict. And then today you're talking with that same person and they say or do something small and you blow up. Well, the reason that's happening is because you're not just responding to what that person said or did today, but all those things that have happened in the past that never got resolved. So anxiety works the same way. If it doesn't get resolved, it gets carried forward. And so you can see anxiety gets stronger over time. You can see um, a uh, a stronger reaction to the same trigger over time. So in recovery, what we're trying to do is to neutralize the episode and the effects of that episode so it doesn't get carried forward. Gotcha. Cool. And
0: you know, I, I, I certainly have met lots of men that almost brag about stress and how much stress they can carry. And it's almost yeah. like, you know, almost being burnt out is kind of a badge of honor. Right. Um, I don't meet many guys that talk about how anxious they feel or an anxiety. Is, is that just uh, a name game?
1: Yeah, I mean, stress and anxiety work in the same systems uh, internally, and so you're going to get the same physiology. If you're stressed, you're going to get an elevated um, heart rate or uh, increased respiration, or you're holding your breath. Um, so in, in that way, it, it is a name game. You know, the, so the way that I think about it is, anxiety is a type of stress. I mean, if you look at the, at the sort of the, the textbook definition of stress. Stress is any situation that demands um, a, a change um, in, in the way that we're doing things. So it's something that's happening in our environment um, that demands a change. So it could be your boss saying, you know, okay, I want this report, you know, in an hour, right? Now you have to do something different. Um, stressors can be positive and negative, you know. So uh, Christmas is – is. Um, uh, past, you know, and, uh, you know, so think about going into Christmas, um, you know, particularly uh, even for situations where, you know, it's a good time to be together, and there's a lot of celebrating and stuff It can still be a stressful situation because of the demands of that situation. So, it can be positive or negative, but whether it's positive or negative, it has an impact on our physiology. So, I try to help people to recognize it. It's kind of like, Um, you know, gas in your gas tank, you've got a limited amount and you're going to deplete it, right? And so stress is burning energy. You're going to run out of that. Uh, Now, can you refill your tank? Absolutely. But if you try to to run, you know, in in chronic stress, you're going to run out of fuel much faster and your car is not going to perform as well.
0: Got it. Yeah. Positive stresses create the same... um reactions within us so things like planning a wedding or a move or a new job can right. can be made all the worse if you've got this whole history of unresolved anxiety and, and issues and if you're just this bundle of triggers so right. even even good things can be that 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 final trigger that really sets you off
1: yeah right and and final trigger or a building trigger yeah you're right it, it you know it all plays a part and you know, I'm not I'm not advocating for people to live um, stress free lives by you know removing every possible trigger. What I want them to, to do is to figure out how to negotiate the challenges that are in their life in a healthy way. You know, so one of the images that, that I use frequently is is think about an outfielder, right? Uh, while the pitcher is holding the the ball, getting ready to pitch, the outfielder wants to be relaxed and ready. You know, if they are breathing fast, um, if they are really tense, they're gonna be burning energy and it's not doing them any good, right? So they, we want to be relaxed and ready. Once the um, pitch is made and the ball gets hit, particularly if it's going to that fielder, they want to spring into action, uh, exert the energy, make the play, but then go back to relaxed and ready. Right. And so that really is my image for life. you know there's we don't want to necessarily eliminate the stressors because many of those stressors are good, but we want to be able to to manage them them in a way that we're able to you know to to play the game for for the, the long term right
0: yeah i mean really the the only constant in life is change, right <laughs> so yeah, yeah if every change just throws you into disarray, then it's going to be a rough life
1: right exactly yeah. exactly yeah.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I've never, uh, I haven't heard the outfielder analogy, but that's, yeah. If, if like, if, if, uh, every strike and every ball of your pitch is just, ah, if you're flinching in the outfield, like losing your mind and right. just being distracted by all that, then yeah, you, you, you can't, you can't feel good. You can't perform right. well. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah. And I, I've seen statistics that, that women have more anxiety than men, but right. I, you know, I think it's it's true with all sorts of, uh, physical and mental ailments, that men are just vastly underreported. They're they're, like, like you said, they're more likely to go, yeah, I'm all stressed out. Not, yeah, I'm anxious and need some help.
1: Exactly. Yep. So there, there, there's a really good chance in those statistics that there is underreporting, but even, you know, if, if you think about what is being reported, it's somewhere between one in three and one in five men. That's still an extraordinarily high number. So, I mean, you know, when, if I think about your listeners uh, if your listener isn't dealing with anxiety himself, then he knows somebody who is. You know, and it's it really is it's affecting us all.
0: Let's let's go there. Um, if if you have a, a friend, a family member, a coworker that is obviously anxious, how, yep. how can you? What can you do in that situation?
1: Right, and so it goes back to what I said before that what's going to get the person out of that uh, episode is a change in their thinking or a change in their physiology, and so. If you're going to do something that's going to help, it's going to be one of those two things or a combination. Uh, And let me say one more thing before I get into what to do. And and I alluded to to this before, but where uh, anxiety and strong emotion lives in the brain is a a part of the brain called the amygdala. And when the amygdala gets triggered, it sends out signals to the rest of the brain, including the front of the brain. The front of the brain is where higher-order thinking lives—logic, reason, problem-solving recall. When the signals from the amygdala reach the front of the brain, it takes the front of the brain offline. And that's why our mind might go blank, that's why we might say or do stupid things when we're angry or when we're anxious. Um, So, and, And part of what that means is things that may be helpful may be perceived as threats. And so if you're trying to help somebody who has anxiety, You have to keep that in mind that you might be um, benevolent in your approach. You might be very kind in your approach, but it might still be perceived as a threat. So what I always tell people is make an attempt, but if it's met with resistance, then back off. So... An attempt might be something simple like, you know, why don't why don't we do some slow breathing together, right? But then you might get that, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. And again, as soon as it's met with resistance, back off because you're not going to get a good result until their anxiety has de-escalated. So if, if it is met with resistance, let them work through it. But then afterwards, you can go back and say, hey, you know, I know that you were really stressed in that situation or you were really, really anxious in that situation. If something like that happens again, what would you like me to do for you, right? Um, And so if I'm working, say, with a parent who has a child with anxiety, I'll make the same recommendation to the parent. You know, I help the parents to recognize the strategies that the child can use And then I suggest to the parent, you know, try one of those strategies, remind the the child of the strategy, but if they're not able to do that, uh, let them de-escalate, then talk with them about it afterwards. And again, we want to use a recovery strategy to be able to neutralize that, um, and then also continue to practice the prevention strategies.
0: We've mentioned breath a number of times, and Uh uh, I can't remember which doctor said this but but maybe you've heard too but the the difference between excitement and fear is is Uh just is breathing
1: right (laughs) Yep, yeah
0: that's something that's always that always struck me and how how true that is and yes if i I find myself um anxious and and nervous and you know on that verge of just really kind of freaking out yeah if i can just remember like all right three deep breaths right enough to just that that pause that so it's a change of state that i'm creating at that point
1: absolutely yeah change in physiology change in state yep that's very good
0: and, you know, in in my personal so I've I've dealt with uh, de- depression and suicidal thoughts for much of my life. Okay. And when I was getting treated for that, and treatment wasn't getting me many results, I was like, oh, maybe I'm may, maybe I'm not even depressed. Maybe I'm actually anxious. Maybe that you know, I'm looking at the wrong thing here." Um, uh-huh. Do do you find that those do go hand in hand a lot or
1: very often? And so, as I'm working with people, one of the things that I ask them to think about is is if they have depression, anxiety is, is one of them primary. And so sometimes I'm working with somebody who has depression and let's say they have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. Well, that could lead to things like them missing work and then they become worried about not being able to pay their bills. Right. And so in that case, the worry is secondary to the depression. Sometimes I work with people who have anxiety And they might be so anxious that they can't leave the house, you know, and so anxiety makes their world smaller and smaller and smaller. And then they come to the conclusion, well, this really sucks, you know. So in that case, the anxiety is secondary to the depression. And sometimes it's what we call comorbid, that you have a person who has depression and anxiety really at the same time. If one is primary and you address that one, the secondary issue will go away uh, along the way. Uh, If it's comorbid, uh, it may not. Now, keep in mind, a lot of the strategies that I teach people are good for both depression and anxiety. You know, what, what I'm trying to help people to do is to figure out how to change their thinking as an example. And what we want to go to are thoughts that are going to be productive, thoughts that are going to lead to a sense of happiness, motivation, confidence, right? Well, you can't be anxious and confident at the same time. And you can't be depressed and happy at the same time, right? So uh, many of the strategies, again, work for depression and anxiety. But, but just as you're, you're saying, they go together very, very frequently.
0: So then it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost doesn't matter, again, which label, uh, any sort of labels or diagnosis, if put these strategies to work, and, again, you change a state, whether, whether you're about to go into a, a depressive state or an anxious state, the, the same strategies that that raising that awareness and doing something about it can can get you back off the uh, metaphorical edge there.
1: Right, right, exactly. And and so you know, yes, there is a, a, a an appropriate time for a diagnosis. Um, but as you're talking about, you know, if you want, if what you're trying to do is to alleviate symptoms, and you're trying to use um, these kind of strategies. Then, whether it was a depressive thought first or an anxious thought first, if you're going to move to um, a uh, a calm thought or a productive thought, then it, it doesn't really matter where you started.
0: You mentioned children earlier. Are are you? I know for a while it seemed like um, mental health challenges were showing up in in younger and younger ages. Are you kind of? Are you still seeing that get younger and younger?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple things happening. One is I I think we are becoming more aware of how it shows up in children. Um, really sort of classic example of that is bipolar disorder. Um, you know, as it was first understood, it had an onset of about young adulthood, and that was the, the type of bipolar disorder where you m- might have had the really low depressions, um, and then the, the manic episode was euphoric. Well, what we see now is that Oftentimes, the the manic or the hypomanic um, uh, episode in children will show up as irritability. And so, you know, we might have thought before that the, the, the child was just cranky. Now we might see that as a symptom of, of a disorder. So I, I think there's a growing awareness. Um, and then... Um, you know, as we become more aware of it and as there's less stigma attached, which means that we can talk about it more, I think we're, we're recognizing um, that kids are affected that, that we didn't previously recognize.
0: Does anything stand out as, as something regarding anxiety that you wish more men realized?
1: I, I think recognizing the prevalence of it. Um, would be helpful. I I think recognizing that there is something that I can do about it because my approach is to see things on continuum. We're all going to experience anxious thoughts from time to time. We're all going to experience um, depressive thoughts or feelings from time to time. Uh, Many people who come to see me don't know that there's something they can do about that. And so if, if people just understood, yes, there is something you can do about it now, There may be times where I'm working with somebody who's so anxious they can't get themselves to do the strategies that I'm talking about. They might be so depressed they can't get themselves to do what we're talking about. Now, those are times where it's appropriate to use uh, medications. And, And so I say, you know, the ideal use of the medication is to take the medication to get over the hump so that you can start using these strategies so that ideally you don't need medication long term. Um but but all of that is predicated on this idea that yes there is something I can do about this.
0: And with the the, the RIP um, stages and strategies, is is, our, is the idea that someone's always gonna use all three or at some point once you get to the prevention strategies is is, is that enough for some people going forward for the for many years or that yeah, that,
1: that's a great question. So so first of all, when I think about the RIP approach, so recovery, intervention, and, and prevention, that can be used for any uh, distressing emotional states, including depression or anger, as well as any problem behavior. Some people drink too much, some people eat too much, right? Um as long as it occurs in episodes then you can use the rip model so somebody might start off using it for anxiety and then later on recognize hey i can use this to um get better at managing my finances as as an example uh, so i i think that that the the strategy really has a, a, a lifetime uh application uh and um so, my goal for people is to for them to learn those those phases and to recognize okay um, if something doesn 't go the way that I want it to go, I can use a recovery strategy so that can be can be you know I experience an anxiety episode or that can be you know the conversation that I just had with my boss didn 't go the way that I wanted it to go now, even though you know uh, I may not have necessarily be anxious or depressed about that. If that negativity has the potential to carry forward, why not do something about it? Uh, and so, so I want them to learn the model. And then in the prevention in particular, what you know, there's lots of things that we can do to prevent anxiety. Um, medication you know, is, is an example of that. But what I'm particularly focused on in the prevention phase is what I call daily practices. So the things that we can do on a regular basis that make it less likely that we get anxious in the first place, but those daily practices um, eventually shift from uh, the, the states that we want to avoid, like anxiety or depression, into what are the states that we want to experience on a more consistent basis? Do I want to be more happy? Do I want to be more confident, be more motivated? Those daily practices elicit those productive states while at the same time helping us to, to manage the unpleasant states.
0: Could, could you share a couple daily practices?
1: Sure. Um, So one that I recommend to almost everybody that I work with, and we were talking about breathing, is what I call parasympathetic breathing. So um, normal rate of breathing for an adult is about 12 to 14 breaths per minute. When we get stressed, worried, or anxious, we tend to do one of two things. We either hold our breath or we breathe faster, 18, 19, 20 breaths per minute or higher. And when we do that, uh, within about 30 seconds of changing our breathing, we're going to change our blood oxygen level. And we change our blood oxygen level, we change oxygen delivery to the brain, right? And keep in mind that your brain runs on oxygen, okay? That's where we can start to get into the cognitive difficulties that we have in anxiety. So somewhere down at the lower end of the range, between five and seven breaths per minute, is what's going to give us the greatest heart rate variability, um, and many uh, of your listeners might be uh, familiar with heart rate variability. Um, it's a it's a um, an indication of, of um, what we call vagal tone. So the um, the the uh, stress recovery system being uh, engaged. So a normal rate for a heart rate for an adult is about seventy beats per minute. But if that never changes, if it's seventy beats per minute, seventy beats per minute, seventy beats per minute, that's the single greatest predictor of a heart attack. So what we want to have happen is when we breathe in, we want the heart rate to increase. When we breathe out, we want it to decrease. So if your heart rate goes up to 80 and down to 60 and up to 80 and down to 60, you still have the average of 70 beats per minute, but you've got 20 beats per minute of variability. And for the most part, in terms of what we're talking about, greater variability is better. So somewhere down in that range of five to seven breaths per minute is what's going to give you the greatest heart rate variability. Now. We can hook people up to the equipment and we can find out exactly what their ideal rate of breathing is. But short of doing that, six is in the middle of that range. And six is a really easy number to remember because six breaths per minute is one breath every 10 seconds. So if you were to breathe in for five seconds and breathe out for five seconds, that's one breath every 10 seconds or six breaths per minute. So what I recommend to to most of my clients is to spend at least five minutes a day breathing like that. Five seconds in, five seconds out. For at least five minutes a day, and I tell people if you like that, you can do it more. You you can't do it too much. You know, the more you do it, the more your body will like you. You know, uh, I ask people to actually focus on a clock during that five minutes, but during the rest of the day, they can just kind of ballpark it. Um, most people find that that feels relaxing. Um, a rare percentage of my clients it will tell me that that they feel more anxious, and that tends to be people who have. Um, OCD or a, a health-related anxiety, they can feel more anxious, and, and I tell them, if that happens, just you know, stop um, doing that, let me know, and, and then I can help work them through that. But So five seconds in, five seconds out, parasympathetic breathing is one of those strategies. So that's kind of on the physiology side, um, and there's also an element of thinking uh, that goes along with that. On the thinking side, um, one of the strategies that I recommend is what I call changing the channel. Um, and so that can be changing the channel can be used as an intervention, but we can set ourselves up for that in, uh, in our prevention work. So a go-to channel might be something like um, happy memories. And so oftentimes I'll have people write out a list of happy memories and then rehearse them. So they bring that happy memory to mind and they uh, try to experience what that felt like and hold on to that feeling for a moment and then go on to the next one. And so um, I asked them to start with 20 happy memories. So it takes them a few minutes to do that, and if they're able to keep their mind focused on the pleasant parts of that, then they stay in that pleasant feeling. Now, just as a warning, there are times that people try to think about happy memories, and they can go to negative aspects of it, or you know, it has the potential to, to um, you know, increase anxiety depending on how it's managed. But that if somebody's able to do that and stay in the pleasant feelings, and that's an example of a prevention strategy.
0: Cool. N- not to pick up the battle of of nature or, or nurture, but do you find that that anxious parents have anxious children? Is is it sort of passed on? Yeah.
1: Yeah. There there is a strong genetic component, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think it's both n- nature and nurture. So. Genetically speaking, somebody might be predisposed to anxiety. That doesn't mean that they're absolutely going to get it. In the same way that, you know, um, uh, addictions there is a genetic component. But just because you had a father who is an alcoholic doesn't mean that you're absolutely going to be one. Um, you again may just have that that predisposition. Um, and so, and if if you have a parent who is anxious in their thinking or the behavior, um, a, a child might might pick that up, so even if the child is like adopted, they might pick up those uh, um, anxious patterns. One of the things that I say to parents is the single best thing that you can do for your child with anxiety is learn to manage your own. And and I say that for a couple reasons. One is, as you learn the strategies that work for you, there's a good chance that those same strategies are are gonna work for your child. And then if you've had the experience of, I know how to get out of anxiety, I know what calm feels like, I'm convinced that it's possible for me, and so I take that conviction into my uh, trying to help you.
0: Where can people learn more about the RIP program and, and, and get all these strategies?
1: So my, my website is transcendpersonaldevelopment.com, and you can also find me on Facebook at Transcend Personal Development.
0: Is this like a group class with you? Is it just an online kind of timeless program you always have access to? Exactly how does the program work?
1: Yeah, so the the, uh, RIP Anxiety course is a five-week course. Um, Each um, lesson is about an hour. Uh, There's a workbook that goes along with it and exercises you do during the week before the the, the next uh, section begins. Um, and it's uh, self-paced. You do it completely on your own. Then you have lifetime access to it. Um, I always encourage people. You know, if you're going through the material and you have questions, feel free to send me an email. I want people to be really, um, uh, really uh, certain about the results that they're getting. Um, and I'm also willing to, if somebody wants to walk them through that program, I'm willing to do that with them. Um, you know, if people are uh, near me uh, here in Litchfield Park, Arizona. Uh, they can come to my office and we can work through it, but but we can work through it online as well. I've done that with um, some of my clients.
0: Oh, cool. So so even though it's kind of an, a self-paced online program, there there is actual access to you if if anyone wants or needs that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Cool.
0: Yeah. That that makes it very different from so many other kind of online programs that that you might come across.
1: Right. You know, my goal really is to take the things that we're doing face to face and make that available to, to a wider audience just because there are so many people that are dealing with anxiety. Um, there really is conflicting information about it on, uh, on the internet. Um, you know, again, I was surprised at the pushback that I got when I started talking about eliminating it. You know, the other thing that, that I've recognized is that, you know, if you Google how to deal with anxiety, you're going to get intervention strategies. You're going to get uh, prevention strategies, but there's almost nobody out there who's talking about recovery strategies. And and if we're missing that part, we're really missing a huge opportunity to um, to go down the path of eliminating anxiety. Cool.
0: Yeah. And, and again, I would imagine if you're you're being brought up in a family that has mastered these strategies and eliminated anxiety, depression, um, addictions, then you're most likely you're going to be brought up with that environment and you'll be primed for, um, prevention as well.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Awesome.
0: So is there a, is there another, any other way? Is it the same site for people to learn more about what else you're doing and get in touch with you?
1: So, um, the site for my therapy clients is, uh, davidphelan.net. Okay. And, uh, I think you and I had talked about putting the, the links in your, on your page.
0: Yep. Yeah. Anyone listening, uh, visit RealMenField.org. The show notes for this show will will have uh, links directly to check more information about the course and also for uh, whatever else uh, David is up to going forward.
1: Yeah, um, great. And then also for for any of your listeners, um, I'll, I'll give them a hundred dollar discount for the RIP course. Oh, great,
0: cool. So they just like say my name at the door? No, will yep. it'll be, yep. it'll be a, <laughs> like, yeah, <okay.
1: laughs> They can click on the link. They can send me an email.
0: Okay, great. All right. And again, if you want to take advantage of that, we'll have more information on how to make that possible at uh, realmanfield.org. Um, but uh, David, I, w- I want to thank you for, for, for everything you're doing and, and bringing this program um, out to the masses. And, you're welcome. and again, what, what, what I love about this, it sounds like so many simple strategies. And in my experience, it's the simple strategies that work the best. Right. But it's our our freaking messed up minds that like, well, I'm really hard and complicated, so it can't be a simple solution. Right. But yet it is.
1: Right. Right. You know, it's just like, I mean, if you think, if you talk to like professional athletes, they'll talk about, you know, doing the basics. And and this is really what it is. I mean, transcend personal development really is about mental and emotional fitness and, and doing the basics and getting the basics down.
0: Beautiful. Well, um, um, again, I'm glad you've got this, this framework for people to help master the basics. So, uh, thanks for spending time with us. Thanks for sharing this with everybody. And, and, and again, thanks for, for bringing this out in the world. And, and especially thanks to, uh, on behalf of my listeners, thanks for the uh, discount to, uh, to check it out.
1: You're welcome. It really was a pleasure to be with you, Andy.
0: Awesome. And, uh, I hope this was a, uh, a calming show for, for listeners, <laughs> not anxiety or stress-inducing. Um, feel free to uh, please uh, let other people know um, about the benefit you're getting from, from this show, from this episode, from, from working with David. Um, give us a like, a, a share, subscriptions, and as always, be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at vandygrant.com. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you are discovering real men feel.